Welcome back to Dreaming of You, the podcast where we will explore why and how we dream. Let's get right into it. For starters, did you all know that daydreaming might actually give context to your dream state? When dreaming, you are given a chance to explore the limits of your imagination. Through the influential threat simulation theory, scientists propose that reward and fear conditioning are common when daydreaming. This suggests that there is an, ad an adaptation in humans where part of the default mode network, including the precunius, have evolved to use thoughts as a mean greater than the hunter-gatherer mindset and more of a task-positive state. This theory proposes a connection between the daydream and the dream since they both allow for an exploration of a space of opportunity without any consequences or physical harm. The theory has been tested in an experiment where they made patients keep a log in which they wrote down their dreams for a week. In another log, they made the patients write activities of their days, including both thoughts they had. From these results, they calculated whether there was a connection between both. Their conclusion was that their, the content of mind wandering is retained for secondary processing and the object of the daydream is woven into a dream story as predominantly visual representation. Ultimately, this theory is debatable. It, if confirmed, dreams may still be devoid of reason, but we could blame it on our daydreams. In fact, dreaming helps people improve their waking lives. Most dreams are a continuation of what is happening in everyday life. It turns out that everyday life impacts dreaming. For example, an anxiety in the life leads to in life leads to dreams with negative effects, and vice versa. Another example is that dreams impact problem-solving skills. Dreaming varies from a person to another and especially from a group to another. Most dream reports were indeed a continuation of what our dreamers were likely to experience in, life, in real life. As much as in their lives, in their dreams, women tended to be friendlier and less aggressive than men. Also, something interesting that we found was that blind people were expected, who were expected to, to dream in ways similar to the general public tended to instead dream imaginary characters. Dreams also provide a method for people to work through emotions. Perhaps the best example of this phenomenon is a nightmare. <clears throat> Nightmares most often serve as a manifestation of stress experienced in one's daily life. For example, if someone is nervous about their first day of school, they may have a nightmare about showing up to class naked. However, anxiety is not the only major factor in dream content, as sleep deprivation, pregnancy, and depression can all cause you to have more vivid dreams due to increased activity in certain parts of the brain. And though there is, a whole, uh, is not a whole lot of research on this subject, many scientists have posited that diet has an effect on dreams, as a heavy consumption of carbs can cause you to remember your dreams a lot better when you wake up. And now that we've told you a lot about what's true about dreaming, let's get into one major falsehood. For a while throughout the 20th century, it was generally assumed that dreams were affected by some sort of external stimulus. For example, it was believed that shining a light in front of a dreaming person could cause the content of their dreams to change. However, a landmark study by Alan Rechtstaffen and David Folks found this theory to be untrue. In their experiment, they used three test subjects whose eyes they taped open and whose pupils they dilated. They then flashed a series of photos before the subjects' eyes before asking the subjects to describe the contents of their dreams. What the researchers found is that flashing the photos had no significant impact on the subjects' dream patterns. Though this is, of course, only one study, later experiments have proven Rechtstaffen and Folks' theory to be largely true. External stimuli do not have an effect on dream content. 
that's all about for today. But if you're all interested in what we've talked about, we highly recommend you to follow Dreaming of You podcast on Instagram. Also, feel free to DM us your personal dream experiences. For example, if changing a certain aspect of your daily life had any effect on your dreams. We also encourage you to, to do your own research on dreaming. It's a fascinating subject and you, you never know what you'll find. See you next week on Dreaming of You. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Big Brain Podcast. Today's episode is titled Tunes and Trauma. We'll take a look at music's effect on the brain and then kind of finish off with how music enhances recovery and things with trauma. Today, I'm joined with scholars Elaine, Nicholas, and Clarence. So yeah, we're going to get started with kind of how music affects the brain first. One thing that I've kind of heard, I don't know about you guys, but music affects every kind of area in our brain. Basically, it's like it, it lights up like a Christmas tree is one thing that I actually found in uh, one of our research articles. But I don't know. What do you guys think? Yeah, I actually also uh, my article talked about that a little bit, um, especially the stimulus that's going on in your brain and how your brain actually processes music. And uh, it can help keep your brain young by listening to different genres of music because it's challenging your brain to perceive it in different ways. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Anyone else have any thoughts about it? Yeah, I actually just read this really interesting article recently that said, um, you know, most of the studies that we hear about have to do with how brain affects your emotions and I mean, how music affects your emotions and that kind of thing. But actually, um, it doesn't just affect your emotions, it affects your heart rate and the movement of your eyes and uh, how your brain just processes everything. And so I thought that was really interesting, too. Yeah, that's awesome. Sam, you um, you were reading a study about uh, running and music, right? Yeah, so uh, running basically is not so much running, but just like human performance as a whole. Like when you listen to music, um, different feelings of euphoria and things like literally can be measured quantitatively and you actually do perform better with specific kinds of music, you know, and that goes into like rhythm and, you know, what songs are more upbeat and slower and, um, just the different kind of music uh, inputs in your brain will really affect <clears throat> your performance. Oh, wow. That's astonishing. So music and performance are directly correlated is what you're saying? Yes. Yes. Oh, okay. Um, but Clarence, what, what, uh, what was your article about? Yeah. So my article took a look at these rats with um, forced PTSD. They were induced with PTSD and they, I guess, tested to see whether music affected them in a positive or negative way. They put these rats in these glass cage and they basically measured, like after exposing them to music for a while, they found that the rats were a lot less nervous and were, yeah, they, they were just more comfortable in harsher and scarier environments. That's interesting. Okay. Um, one of the things that I saw in my article, I had another one, was how music affected, you know, like stress recovery in traumatic brain injury patients. So basically what they did was they used music in patients with TBI that were recovering. What can you just explain what TBI Sorry, is? Sorry, that's a traumatic brain injury. So like if you hit your head, but basically what they found was nothing statistically significant uh, changed how the brain recovered. But what they did measure was that um, stress levels were uh, greatly reduced. Uh, in all of those patients. So my study actually uh, looked at the difference between 
you know, they had these patients and they played uh, duple meter music, which is marching music and triple meter music, which is like waltz music, for example, um, and tried to see how that kind of, if either of those um, different types of beat to meter ratios changed how their brain was uh, being active and how their heart was. And they even measured the eye blanks of the patient, of the participants in the study. And they actually found that there was really no difference between the way the participants reacted to the different types of meters in the set, in the music, but there was a huge difference between if they were listening to music or if they were not listening to music. So I found that really interesting. It's really cool that we can kind of, uh you know, pull all of this information together. I know we're kind of running out of time here, but uh, in terms of how, how music has affected the brain, how music affects our recovery, how music affects um, all these different aspects of our lives and then the future implications, um, I truly look forward to seeing, you know, where this music in the brain goes. All right, thank you guys for joining us. Um, tune in next week to Music and the Brain podcast. Please go ahead and follow our Instagram page, Frontiers of Science. Um, and if you would... If you donate to some combat veterans, we'll have it linked in that below with PTSD. PTSD combat veterans. Thank you. Hey guys, welcome back to the FroSide podcast. This episode is on climate change, human evolution, and the economy. I'm your host, Albert, a freshman at Columbia College. I'm Jerome, another freshman at Columbia College. My name's Harrison, also a freshman at Columbia College. Hi, um, so today I'm going to start off by talking about how climate change has um, impacted human evolution. And so first I'll be talking about the article Cenozoic Vegetation, Climate Changes, and Hominid Evolution in Tropical Africa by Raymond Bonifile. Um, and basically what his research is looking at is how changes in vegetation, climate, and the glaciers in the Arctic and Antarctic um, coincided with um, changes in human evolution and the emergence of new species. Oh, nice. And can you tell us a little bit about what his study found? So basically what he found was that changes in the... Um, the uh, climate and overall just the uh, glacial levels coincided with the chimpanzee hominid sl split as long as well as the appearance of the genus homo that's pretty interesting um are there any alternative theories on how climate change has impacted human evolution other than this specific article's viewpoint yeah so one also um, alternative kind of theory is the variability selection hypothesis which basically discusses how um, human evolution may have been driven by the ability to adapt to a very frequently changing environment rather than a specific environment overall um, so basically what you would see with this would be um, increased genetic variability among the population so that they could adapt to these different changes as well as the use of tools by um, early humans to adapt to their changing environments yeah, that's great. So moving on from evolution and climate change's effects on our past, we can now talk a little bit about how climate change can affect our future, specifically in the economy and proximally the American economy. So this article is about the climate change effects on the American economy, specifically the importance of municipal and agricultural demands in future water shortages in the U.S. So this article uses data from past and present water usage to predict how climate change's impact on water affects the American economy. So by using this past and present data, the authors predicted that our future supply and demand of water will be dramatically impacted by climate change in a negative way, which means that the agricultural sector of the U.S. would lose a lot of money, essentially. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about the results of the study? Yeah, definitely. So this is pretty interesting that um, the authors concluded specifically that over a quarter of important water basin regions in the U.S., will face water shortages in the future, which significantly damages agricultural production. 
This means our food production, economic growth, as well as public water supply will all be hurt, which could potentially lead to job cuts, food shortages, or water shutdowns. Yeah, so those are all some problems that are big deals. Uh, what are some general and aggregate factors in the economy that like, climate change creates? Yeah, so uh, just like outside the agricultural sector, more generally on the entire country, there is massive, almost billion dollar losses from the US economy, just because of climate change's aggregate effect on water, on soil, on transportation, all these kinds of key infrastructure that is really uh, interconnected with the US economy, which overall shows that there's going to be a negative effect. Thanks, Albert, for telling us a little bit about the effects of climate change on the US economy. I'm just gonna talk a little bit on the world economy. So one, I read an article called Climate Change in the World Economy, Short Run Determinants of Atmospheric CO2. It was written by Science Direct, and it studied how um, increases or changes in atmospheric CO2 affected the world economy and like the global population and GDP. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Um, can you tell us a little more about specifics and or conclusions from the study? Yeah, so one of the things they found, big things that they found was that as there was an annual growth of atmospheric CO2 as global warming gets worse and climate change increases, there's a, also a strong correlation to that from that to a rise in global GDP and the, the strengthening of the world economy. Okay, that's pretty interesting. Are there any conflicting ideas regarding climate change's impact on the world economy? Yeah, so one of the biggest things is that a lot of, for a lot of countries, if they want to make the most profit, they practice manufacturing techniques that harm the environment, uh, pollute water, and do things that are just destroying the land and resources. So eventually there's going to be a breaking point where that the crop yield is much lower as there's going to be less clean water, resources are scarce, and land is more of a commodity. And then at that point, there will be less, the economies will weaken, and um, there will be people, the countries will make less money. Yeah, no, that's that sounds pretty bad. But luckily, we can all do our small part to help out this holiday season. Try to limit your transportation and source your turkeys and hams locally. We hope you learned something new. If you like this podcast segment, follow our podcast, which drops Tuesdays and Thursdays. It really helps us out. Yeah, and overall, just be grateful for the world we live in and try to preserve it. We'll see you next time on another episode with the Froside Bros. Counting backwards, but I'm not sure. It's like strange. I'm counting environment. The time we have to go back. Yeah, I'm counting it. Yeah. For when the world ends because of climate change. I'm Irie. I'm Siwan. I'm Lila. Siwan, what exactly is this giant clock that we're standing under? Well, the 62-foot-wide, 15-panel electric clock is the metronome. Since 1999, it's counted down the seconds left until midnight every day on a building across the street from New York's famous Union Square. Then on September 19th, the metronome began showing an ominous new number. Seven years, 103 days, 15 hours, 13 minutes. And so on, what exactly is this number? Well, Lila, this number is a countdown to a critical deadline for climate change presented by the United Nations in a 2018 special report. After decades of worrisome research on global warming, the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change ended up with one very important number, 1.5 degrees Celsius. While it sounds small, an Earth temperature rise of 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels would bring irreversible damage to the world's most fragile ecosystems and set off devastating humanitarian crises. The IPCC estimated that 420 gigatons of CO2 would likely bring about that temperature rise. And at our current rate of annual emissions, we would exhaust that carbon budget by 2028. So seven years from today. 
So I assume many of us by now are familiar with the terms carbon emissions and global warming, but it can be confusing to understand how all of that's related. Lila, how do carbon emissions cause global warming? Well, think of Earth as a greenhouse. Its atmosphere acts as a barrier like the walls of a greenhouse would. Inside this atmosphere live greenhouse gases such as water vapor, carbon dioxide, methane, and nitrous oxide. When sunlight hits Earth, some energy bounces back to space, but the rest is trapped in the atmosphere. Greenhouse gases absorb this energy and spread heat across Earth, effectively warming it up. We call this the greenhouse effect. And where do carbon emissions come into this? Well, Irie, greenhouse gases alone are perfectly natural, but the daily doings of you and I are causing more carbon emissions. Human activities increase greenhouse gases and thereby increase the warming of Earth or global warming. Burning fossil fuels, for example, increases the concentration of carbon dioxide in Earth's atmosphere. With this unnaturally high temperature comes disasters. Our planet is heating up, our glaciers are melting. If this continues, Earth will drown. Oh gosh. Irie, is there anything we can do to mitigate these rising temperatures? The historian Howard Zinn once said that small steps multiplied by millions of people can transform the world. In order to meet the metronome's deadline and give the Earth a better shot at curbing the effects of global warming, all of us need to implement some important changes in our daily lives. High impact choices include switching to a plant-based diet, which reduces emissions by about 0.8 metric tons per year, washing your clothes with cold water, which will have an annual average of 0.4 metric tons, and upgrading your light bulbs, which will lead to annual savings of about 0.2 metric tons. Hmm. Those are great, but the number 0.4 and 0.2 sound awfully small. Is there a way to make a bigger impact? Well, it's important, in fact essential, for individuals to do their part in reducing carbon emissions. Real change can only come from systemic, collective action steps taken by states and multinational corporations. According to an analysis from the Climate Accountability Institute, just 20 fossil fuel companies have contributed over 480 billion metric tons of CO2, roughly a third of all emissions, since 1965. In order to truly curb emission rates and quote unquote meet the deadline, climate regulation and structural change must occur at a truly global level. Well, is it even possible to halt the racing train wreck of global warming? Even if we drastically reduced our carbon emissions right this second, the excess heat and carbon dioxide already in the ocean and atmosphere would continue evaporating into space. That means it would still take decades for Earth's temperature to stop rising. While that's worrisome, we can still take important measures as individuals and as a collective so we don't add to the existing damage. It's not a question of can, but a statement of must. The metronome is ticking and our planet is at stake. To learn more about the science behind the metronome, or to install a climate clock of your own in your city, check out climateclock.world. There is a whole community of scientists, educators, and climate activists waiting for you to join their ranks.